You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Well, good morning. Hope everybody's well. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open to Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1 through verse 12. Acts 20, verse 1 through verse 12. If you're new with us, we have been for quite a few months now making our way through the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 20 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you remember in the last part of Acts chapter 19, there was a riot in Ephesus. Things were really not going very well um, for the Christians there. But the city clerk, who was himself an Ephesian and Gentile, comes and calms the crowd and sends them on their way. And then it transitions uh, right on over to Acts chapter 20. And you'll notice in verse 1 it says, After the uproar ceased. And so the uproar has ceased and now we pick up in, in this journey. And so if you look down with me at Acts chapter 20 verse 1. And I'll read the first six verses and then we'll look at a couple of things and then take 7 through 12. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria he decided to remain through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days." And so up to this point, Paul has been a pioneer missionary. He's done pioneer mission work, which means he's taken to the gospel to these places for the first time. Well, in Acts chapter 20, it begins Paul's third missionary journey. And his third missionary journey um, consists of him going back to the churches that he's founded and that he's planted and encouraging them and discipling them and checking up on them. So I have you a map. I have you two maps, actually, this morning for those of you that... Um, maybe just one of you, because only... anyway, um, uh, I have maps. So the first map, and if you can see it, I don't know how well you can see that, but, but there's an orange line, and the orange line is Paul's route from Ephesus to Macedonia. So Ephesus is going to be in this far right-hand corner if you're looking at it, and he makes his way all the way back through Philippi and Macedonia, and, and he, he eventually comes down towards Corinth and in that Greece area, well, there's a disturbance. Everywhere Paul's been, the Jews have not really liked that. And so there's a disturbance that happens. And after the disturbance, that represents the green line. The green line, he goes back north, is Paul's route after the disturbance back to Philippi. So, so he leaves Ephesus and makes his way, encouraging churches all the way back towards Corinth. And then there's a disturbance there. And so he makes his way back north to Philippi. Well, let me show you this next map. Because he only stays in Philippi for a little while. And he sends all of these that we just read ahead of him. Uh, to Troas, and then Paul's route from Philippi to Troas was what you see there. He left Philippi and sailed um, southeast to, to Troas. And so um, I hope this helps you sort of get a little bit better context because he's, you know, he's not jumping in an airplane, okay? He, he's not, there were no Ubers back then. I mean, the traveling was rigorous. The traveling was difficult. You had to be intentional. You had to be prepared. I mean, there was a lot to it, but Paul was serious about the work that God had called him to, and so he's making his rounds. 
When he left Ephesus and made his way through Macedonia, he, he stopped in the regions that he'd planted churches, and he might have noticed those um, that he sort of gathered from those churches. And so basically what we have, except for from the church at Corinth, there's representatives from every church. And we learn this in First and Second Corinthians, that as Paul was making his way from Ephesus back towards Corinth, and then back to Philippi, and then to Troas, he's headed towards Jerusalem. He wants to get to Jerusalem. But along the way, when he's encouraging these other churches that he's planted, he's taking leaders with him to Jerusalem, and he's also encouraged them to give an offering to the church at Jerusalem. I think there's a couple of reasons for this. I think the primary reason is because there had been a famine in Jerusalem, and the Jews already didn't have much, and so they were poverty-stricken. Now they're hungry, and they had tremendous needs, and so he wanted these Gentile believers to give out of their resources so that they could benefit the Jewish, uh, the Jerusalem Christians there. But also I think Paul is intentional about continuing to try to close the gap between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And so all of these men are representatives from these churches that were planted, and they all have offerings that, they're, as we'll see, they're going to take towards Jerusalem, but there's not one from Corinth. And we don't really know why there's not one from Corinth. Um, you could speculate, and, and, and if you do that in, in reading the letters that Paul writes back to the church at Corinth, they had a lot of problems. And what it seems is it seems that they just weren't willing or, did, or weren't able to gather an offering because of all the other problems that they had, and Paul had to deal with so many other things that it just didn't work out to send anybody from those particular churches. If you look down with me in verse 7. So Paul has made his way to Troas, and this is where we pick up this glimpse into a gathering, a Sunday gathering at Troas. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so departed. Verse 12. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now a couple of things before we unpack this. One, I want to just point out this. If, if you've been with us through this journey in Acts, we have seen Luke, uh, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, use sometimes one, two, or even three verses to describe what's happened over a two or three year period. I mean, he, he hasn't given a tremendous amount of detail over some of the things. And so whenever we see six or seven verses dedicated to this worship service in Troas... Now, I, I started to say in this normal worship service in Troas, but if you heard what I just read and you read along, it was anything but normal. But that's really what it was. It, it was a Sunday gathering that Luke dedicates this many verses to. Now, we've got to deal with the elephant in the room, right? This young man, Eutychus. This young man, um, he, he got sleepy, sat in a windowsill, and when Paul was preaching, he fell into a deep sleep and apparently fell to his death. The first three things to notice. First is this. I find encouragement that people fell asleep even when Paul preached. 
Okay. I know, I know that may be a little sick of me, but you know, I, it, it does make me feel a little better about myself. The second point of application for me is that long sermons kill people. Okay? The third one's for you. Don't fall asleep in church. It could lead to your death. I mean, because that's what we read. But if we just deal with the facts, let's, let's deal with the facts, because there is a lot of speculation, and brothers and sisters, there are rabbit trails for days out of this section of Scripture. Let's deal with the facts. The facts are it was a long sermon. But it was long because Paul knew he was leaving the next day. And he wanted to spend this time with them. He was leaving for good. It was late in the day and everyone was tired. And their culture on this first day of the week, they would have worked. So they had worked all day and they met in the evening. And so the later that it gets in the evening, obviously everyone is tired. We also noticed, and you might not have ever connected this, but there were many torches or lamps in the room. Which means that there was fire in the room. And windows in the first century were not for aesthetics. It wasn't so you just gaze out the window and look at your yard or look at the trees or whatever you look at when you look out your window. It was for ventilation. And so more than likely, Eutychus, he, he was, he'd been there a while, he was a young man, and so he goes and sits in the windowsill maybe to get some fresh air. We know that he fell asleep, and we know that he fell out of the window, and this is when some scholars and commentators start to kind of part ways a little bit, because there are some that aren't sure that he physically died. And there are some that are convinced that he physically died. I think there are some really good arguments on both sides of it. I land um, cautiously on the side of that he, he did die. And Paul finds himself into the category of some very unique Bible characters in uh, God using him to raise this young man from the dead. So Paul hears the commotion and runs down and gets him out of the yard. And the Bible says when he puts him in his arms, he, he wakes up. Right? He, he comes alive. His life is in him. Paul says, do not be alarmed. And then what we know is that Paul continues to apparently preach. And that's why some people think, well, if he'd have raised him from the dead, that would have completely changed everything. That would have made a bigger deal about it. And I'm like, it made the Bible. You know? But really, um, again, there's rabbit trails, and, and, and I don't think it was, it's worth our time to really chase down any of those things. So what do we make of this? What is the application of what, let's be honest, of what we would call a freak accident? Because that's what this would be. If something like this happened in our gathering or at one of our events, we would say, well, that's just a freak accident. So what is there for us to apply theologically? Well, we've seen in the book of Acts, and we hold true to this at Covenant Church, we believe wholeheartedly that God is sovereign. Which means that God is in control of every single thing, always has been, currently is, and always will be. And so even though an accident seems freak or random, as we might say, we believe that our God is still sovereign over those type accidents. And so we have to apply that to something like this. The first century church would have to apply their thinking, their theology of God to something like this. Well, well God is sovereign. And I think another application is to say this. What, what, what the enemy intended for evil, God intended for good. I think that's the most general, safe, basic, beautiful application that we can walk away from from this story of Eutychus. 
It was a tragic accident. And God graciously spared his life. And in this moment, when these Christians were gathered together, they're upset because Paul's leaving. Surely Paul has some anxieties about leaving. They all know what's ahead of them because they've experienced the heartache and the persecution already. Think of how frustrating it would be to say, man, Eutychus, like, like, why would this happen? And then God in His kindness gives him his life back, authenticating again the gospel that Paul is preaching and encouraging the believers in him. On the other hand, I think that this glimpse into this church at Troas provides for us the necessary elements to our worship gatherings today. Some of you may wonder, why do we meet on Sundays? You may wonder, why do we preach the Bible? You may wonder, why do we take communion nearly every single Sunday? You may wonder, why do we have equip groups and community groups and Sunday school classes? And why do people go to lunch together to have gospel conversations? Like, where did that come from? I mean, you may enjoy them, but you still might not know like why. Like, scripturally, biblically, why do we do the things that we do? And some of you may just have to fight tooth and nail to get here. Some of you have a, a, a good category for church, as long as there's nothing else going on. I think this section really helps us see what it means to be the church and what it means to be committed to the church. So let's look at these elements one at a time. The first thing that we see is they gathered on the first day of the week, on Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. Now, there would have been a Jewish dilemma here. Because for centuries, under the Old Covenant, the Jews were mandated to gather and to worship on the Sabbath, which is a Saturday. There were lots of rules and regulations around the Sabbath, but it seems in the book of Acts that there's almost a seamless transition for these Jewish Christians to start to worship on what they call the Lord's Day or the first day of the week or Sunday. What is it that changed? Why do we still today meet on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week? I'm sure you know, if you've been in church, how important the resurrection of Jesus is. Well, it's important to our day of worship as well. The only explanation for why the first church started meeting on Sundays is because that was the day that Christ came out of the tomb. That was the day that Jesus resurrected. So the resurrection had not only validated everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said, it had literally changed their whole lives, their whole understanding of who God is and what it means to be His, but it also changed their day of worship. And now they celebrate in a tangible way the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day of every week that is the Lord's day. Think of it. Sundays are meant to be, for us, a tangible reminder that Jesus is alive. And so they met on the first day of the week. The second thing to notice is that they gathered 
around the preaching of the Word. They, they gathered around the preaching of the Bible. And friends, this is basic Christianity. Christians gather around the preaching of the Bible. Christian preaching is the preaching and teaching of the Bible. Christian preaching and Christian teaching is not self-help. It's not motivational speeches. Those things have their place, but not in this pulpit. What is fundamentally Christian about the gathering of these believers is that they gathered around the proclamation and the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. Faithful preaching, faithful preaching of the Word, I'm going to give you a few things here for you note takers, so be ready. Faithful preaching changes our focus. We can relate to this because, I, well, I can. I can relate to this because I open my eyes every morning by God's grace. He wakes me up and I put my feet on the floor and it's almost immediately a battle of focus. From self to things of the world to battling the flesh. And so it takes the preaching and the proclamation of the Word of God to help us reorient our thinking and to change, change our focus. And so faithful preaching of God's Word when we gather together is one of the primary ways that God uses to change our focus from self to Savior. Another thing faithful preaching does is it renews our faith. Friends, I look across this room and I think most of us are old enough to understand that we don't have the resources to do this. We don't have the ability to renew our faith. And the irony is, the, more, the harder we work and the harder we try to renew our, own, or, uh, yeah, renew our own faith or to make our faith stronger, the weaker we get, the more burden that we heap on ourselves and the more discouraged we become. Faithful preaching will renew your faith because it proclaims and shows that the object of our faith is strong. And the object of our faith is not faith itself, it's Christ Himself. So faithful preaching changes our focus, it renews our faith. Faithful preaching also allows us to grow in grace. When we sit attentively under the faithful preaching of the gospel, we should, we should grow more and more and more and more. You know, this is so important. More and more and more in our understanding that it's all Him. Too much preaching, too much preaching is stacking the load on your shoulders. Faithful preaching of the gospel allows us to grow in grace. Faithful preaching of the gospel is not heaping more law and more burden on our shoulders. Faithful preaching also equips us for ministry. This is important to understand because culturally I think that, uh, and, and, and it may just be semantics, maybe it's just semantics, maybe I'm, I'm thinking too deeply about this, but I think culturally there's a, this line of thinking that right now I'm the one that's in ministry. But really what Ephesians 4 teaches is that my job is to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry. Christian equipping is from the preaching and teaching of Scripture. The, the only way, the best way for us to be equipped as Christians 
is from the Bible. Again, like I'm not trying to grandstand or get on a soapbox, but these 12 steps to being the best Christian or these self-help books, they have their place, but they are not how you are equipped for the work of ministry. That equipping comes through Scripture and the teaching and preaching of Scripture. It's fitting that we celebrated New Covenant Partners today. Because it expresses and shows how much we value the local church. And the reason that we value the local church as greatly as we do is because the Bible values the local church this much. Have you guys heard, I'm sure you have, these conversations of, well, I love Jesus, but not the church. I know there's hurt. I know some of you, some of us have been hurt by Christians within the church. There's been abuses of power. There's been some gross, wicked, evil things that have happened from church leadership and other members of congregations. Like, I'm not diminishing that and I'm not making light of that. I know that that pain is real and I know that the hurt is real. But I want to be honest with you about something. This this book has no category for a person that loves Jesus And not the church. In the New Testament, all you see are people who love Christ and are a part of a local body of believers. They are as committed to one another as they are to the Lord. They have a clear and solid understanding of what it means for them to be together and why they in fact are together. As they grow in grace and they're equipped for ministry. I I, I know this sounds like such preacher talk. You may think it's self-serving. But each one of you that feels called to this local body or whatever local body you feel called to are a valuable asset and a necessary gift to that congregation. And that's not something I'm saying. That's something that the Word says. Changes our focus. Faithful preaching renews our faith. We grow in grace. It equips us for ministry. And last but certainly not least, faithful preaching leads us to Jesus. One of the chief benefits of faithful preaching is encountering Jesus Himself through hearing and receiving His Word. Pause for a second and just remember your testimony. Remember how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus. If you're like me, no, I didn't walk an aisle. But each one of us, I guarantee you, each one of us, as we reflect on our testimony and we peel those layers back, somewhere along the way, there was faithful preaching of the gospel. Because this is God's ordained way for us to hear and to receive Christ. Martin Luther said, to preach the gospel is nothing else than Christ coming to us or bringing us to Him. So they gathered around the Word. Next thing we see is they took the Lord's table or the Lord's Supper or communion. Now, the Lord's Supper is a critical aspect of what it means to be the church. This is a very common question that we receive here at Covenant. Why do we take communion so much? And, and there's some pretty valid arguments, and some of you may have these same feelings in that well, it, if we, when we do it every week, it makes it feel mechanical, it sort of loses its value, it kind of loses its pop. 
Um, it, it, it becomes too familiar. So why do we? Why do we have the conviction that we should take the Lord's table as often as we should? Well, um, it's, it's one of the few things that Christ Himself started this way. Do this. Jesus Himself said for us to do this. If you study in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul addresses communion, and he's, he's addressing it for different reasons, I encourage you to read, starting in about verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11 through verse 34, you'll learn a lot there, but what you'll see, and you can't help but see, five times he says, when you come together. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. That phrase, if you chase it around the New Testament to break bread, it's not talking about going to the local meet and three and breaking bread together as we say. What it's talking about is them coming together as Christians and observing what Christ commanded them to observe on the night before He was crucified when He gathered with His disciples and He Himself broke that bread that was representative of His body and He Himself poured the cup that was representative of His body. Blood, And so the reason that we take communion every single week, nearly every single week, as long as we don't have baptisms, is because it puts Christ center stage. And if you get tired of that, I, I mean, that's fair. But that's why. The reason we do it every single week is because God ordained it this way and that it puts Jesus Christ at center stage so that the believer can remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And it's also a proclamation of the body of Christ and the blood of Jesus. And to remind you what that body did. We had no possible way with these hands that God's given us and these feet and these minds and these hearts to please God. And so God came and put on this flesh and lived in perfect obedience to the Father. And that perfectly obedient life led Him to a very real physical cross where He took the punishment that our sin deserves. His physical body was beaten, He was mocked, He was ridiculed, and His physical body died a very real death as the weight of the sins of His church was put on Him. And that blood that He shed was the final and pure sacrificial blood. The new covenant does not lead us to another altar to make more sacrifices because it's not necessary. The new covenant ushers us through the blood of Jesus to a table because we are now a part of the family of God. So this reminds us of Christ. If the pulpit doesn't preach the gospel, the table does. So they broke bread together. They took the Lord's Supper. Next, they had gospel conversation and fellowship. Now, keep in mind, this was post-Eutychus's uh, you know, stunt there, falling out the window. But they continued to have conversation in verse 11. He, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. That Greek word conversed really speaks to more intentional conversation. So why do churches have small groups? Why do we have equipped groups? Why do we have Sunday school? Why do we have community groups? Why are there various uh, uh, members of our congregation that go and meet and have gospel conversations? Because it's a necessary part of what it means to be a Christian. Sometimes this is organic. It needs to be intentional as well, friends. This is normal Christianity. 
On the first day of the week, the church gathers together. They gather around the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. They take communion together, celebrating and worshiping and proclaiming the death of Christ until He comes. And they have gospel conversations and they have gospel fellowship. And it's all worship. It's all worship. The fellowship is worship. The communion is worship. The preaching is worship. The singing is worship. It's all worship. And it doesn't need innovation. There's such a temptation for us to feel like that we need to be innovative. Innovation has its place and there are things you can do to help cultural context. Like I get all of that. But, but friends, we have to at least at the bare minimum do these things and be about these things because this is the way that God ordained it. The second we depart from any of these for the sake of innovation or reaching somebody, we've departed from what it means to be a church. I want you to imagine with me for a second. Imagine if the first churches didn't preach the Bible. Which that would mean that the first churches did not have their faith renewed. They did not grow in grace. They weren't equipped for ministry. What if Paul established these elders and the elders were like, hey man, the word's just not quite enough so we're just going to give basically pep talks and motivational speeches every Sunday and get them fired up about going to work Monday because they're so great. I mean, what if they would have done that? What if they would have forsaken communion? What if they wouldn't have been committed to gathering every single week together and at that gathering being reminded of the beautiful reality of the gospel that we are in the family of God because of the work of Jesus, because of His body and because of His blood? What if they would have forsaken gospel conversations? What if it never came up again? What would that mean for the second century church? I'm scared to even think of what it would mean for us. What if they hadn't taken the weekly gathering seriously? That, that, that's what I want you to imagine. And I want to ask us some questions. Do you view the Lord's Day as a special day with unique priorities? Now, before I go on, some of you are going to shut me down. I know that. Some of you are going to think, well, you just talked about grace and not putting burden. I'm not trying to put burden. I want us to evaluate our hearts. Because the truth of Scripture is, is when we gather together and we are committed to that gathering... God Himself ministers to us in some very unique and special ways that He doesn't do any other place. When we come together because of Him and for Him. Do you view the Lord's Day as a special day with unique priorities? Is it obvious that you do? Is it obvious 
first to you. Is, is it obvious to our children? Is it obvious to our church? Is it obvious to our neighbors? Is it obvious to others that we view the Lord's Day as a special day with special priorities? That we see the Lord's Day as an opportunity to have unique blessing from God. Not that we have to go, but that we get to go. We are privileged in that Christ has opened our eyes to the truth of who He is. And we get together, we get together on the first day of the week, the day that Christ came out of the tomb, solidifying our salvation. And we get to come celebrate Him with other people. When, when people observe our lives, where's our passion? There's a place, to be clear, for sports, playing them or watching them, hobbies, vacations, work, etc. on Sundays. Christ Himself ushered in a new covenant. Christ Himself is the final Sabbath rest. And what we've received through the gospel means we have ceased in our work trying to earn the righteousness of God. He has freely given it to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Himself fulfills the Sabbath of the Old Covenant and the rest that the Gospel brings in. So I'm not giving you law. I'm not trying to be legalistic. And I'm admitting that there, there is a place for sports and hobbies and vacations and work and all of those kind of things. But something is wrong if you are more passionate about these things than gathering with the people of God to celebrate our risen Savior. There's something wrong. There's something wrong when we can easily forfeit gathering with other Christians as long as there's not something better to do. One of the most important examples we can leave to our children and one of the greatest encouragements to one another is when we say with the psalmist I was glad when they said let us go to the house of the Lord parents our children are studying us like it or not we are our children's theology professors they're watching and all I'm asking of myself included, because Charlie and I have made a mess of this as parents. We have confused our children at times way more than uh, you know, showing them something that makes sense. So I, I'm, not preaching to, I'm not preaching down to you. I'm on eye level with you. But we can't ignore the realities that we see in Scripture and that God has commanded us to come together. And when we come together, He ministers to us in a very unique way. And it was a priority to the first century church. And if it hadn't been a priority to every century up until this point, we wouldn't be here today. And so when our children look at our lives, do they hear us saying, this is supremely important, this is the most important, but watch us continue to choose other things over what we're saying is supremely important. When we don't take seriously the gathered church, we forfeit one of the greatest graces Christ has given us this side of heaven. What's sad about that is the amount of pain and hurt and frustration that many of us have experienced among that congregation of people. 
But the Bible doesn't give us the option to bail on it. It doesn't give us the option to forfeit the gathering. In fact, it says the opposite. Do not forsake the gathering. And that's not just a box you check so that you can be sure you go to heaven. It's an experience. It's meant to be an experience of joy and celebration in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that we come together on the first day, on the Lord's day. Not my day, not your day. It wasn't the Jews' day. It wasn't the Gentiles' day. It's on the Lord's day that He busts out of the tomb, guaranteeing our salvation. We get to come together as sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, all because of His grace, and have our faith strengthened, grow in grace, to be equipped for the work of ministry, and to leave that assembly with the intentional thought and desire to have gospel conversations with one another and to have gospel conversations with those who have yet to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Like, again, I know I I'm, I'm sound like a broken record, but this is normal Christianity. In closing, I must say how encouraged I am to be a part of this church. I know you're probably thinking, dude, why are you saying this to us? We're here. True, true. But I want you to know why you're here. I want you to be reminded of the privilege that it is for us to be here. And I'm so glad to be a part of a church that the vast majority of the faces that I look into every Sunday and hands that I shake, you can tell that they're glad to be here. And they understand why they're here and probably know in the back of their minds that they shouldn't be here, but only by the grace of God are we here together to celebrate so thank you, Covenant Church. I don't want you to leave here burdened. I want you to leave here with a clear understanding and to be reminded of why God has ordained for us to come together. It's for our good. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.